Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having frank and open conversations about building and marketing products and building the businesses behind them. I'll be digging into best practices, war stories, and hopefully some hot takes to try to inspire you to build the right things, build them right, and get them to market effectively. If you want more of that sort of thing, why not head over to onenightinproduct.com where you can sign up to the mailing list, subscribe on your favourite podcast app, or follow the podcast on your favourite social media platform, and guarantee you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we talk exec-level product leadership, how to build an inclusive, collaborative team culture, and how to keep that culture intact with the pressures of scaling and multiple acquisitions. We talk about beautiful business software. No, not software for beautiful businesses, but how to make back-office software shine and keep UX at the heart of your decision-making. We also find out a little bit about how a CPO with a non-traditional product management background lands with a team of opinionated product managers, how to build trust, and how to keep that trust going. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Anna Curzon. Anna's a business leader and member of the, deep breath, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Business Advisory Council, or ABAC to its friends, where she was appointed by the other type of PM. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern to advise regional business leaders on their digital strategies. Anna's passionate about building products with innate purpose and using technology to help small businesses thrive, but she's doing this at a rather big business as CPO of Zero, leading product at a New Zealand unicorn with over a million customers and thousands of employees. A former wannabe anthropologist, she's now turned instead to trying to drive a human culture to nurture innovation and teamwork. Hi Anna, how are you tonight? I'm doing very well, thank you Jason. So first things first, you're actually not the first product person from Zero I've had on the show, but just to make sure he was telling the truth and not going to get in trouble with his boss. In your own words, what problem does Zero solve for me? Oh, well, would you consider yourself, Jason, a small business owner? Well, we could consider a podcast a small business, I, I guess. I think so. doesn't make any money, but then not all businesses have to make money, right? <laughs> well, um, Jason, exactly, exactly. You're doing something that's super passionate. You're creating value. And at Zero, we just simply want to make your life easier. And we want to make it easier for you and those that support you. It's really as simple as that. But what does that specifically mean? Like, what do you specifically put in people's hands? So we are a, we started off life actually as an accounting software business. And so that's debits and credits. And we were born actually from a problem that our founder wanted to solve. And he'd started his own business and he went into his accountant and said, this is, this is just rubbish. I don't have, you know, the information I need. I can't really look forward and plan out my business. You know, what software is out there to enable me to, to do all this stuff? And as Calvin said, well, there isn't anything. And that's literally how Zero was born about 15 years ago. So, of course, now we've developed into this beautiful small business platform that's global. We've got a huge community of app partners supporting us as well, a huge community of accountants and bookkeepers and their clients that are all part of that Zero story. Now, I said, obviously, that Zero are quite a big company these days. You've been scaling quite relentlessly. But does that mean that you're still using Zero to manage the finances of Zero, or have you had to do something different? <laughs> Unfortunately, now we're no longer classified uh, quite as a small <laughs> business. So you, had to, you had to fire yourself, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But once upon a time, we definitely used it on a day to day basis. And it's, it's so important. And what a gift to be able to use your own product. 
but now we talk to our customers frequently and often to make sure that we understand exactly how we can make their lives better. Absolutely. But you've just touched on it. We've both touched on it a couple of times. It's a big company, thousands of employees. But how many of those employees report into you through the product organization? Like, What's the size of the team? What about 1,200 people globally? And so that's everyone from product managers to engineers to designers to data experts. So the whole suite, I guess, of the product community. And we've got people in New Zealand, Australia, the US, the UK. And as we've talked about, we're talking a little bit about this earlier, it means sort of early mornings and late nights. But the beauty of being an online company and being able to connect in this way means that, you know, we can, we can really build knowledge organically online, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, as again, we were discussing before this, the New Zealand time zone is a tricky one for dealing with a lot of the world, right? Because, you know, it's so far from everywhere else. Does that mean that you've always had a kind of a, an asynchronous policy going on where you can do as much as, of your work as possible without having to do it in real time? Or is it, as you've said, that you've just had to have people kind of up either early or late? Well, it's a bit of a mix, to be honest. We One of our values is human. So we love to eyeball each other. <laughs> Even in the period <laughs> of COVID, where we can't travel and be with each other. And so we are known to probably over-index on meetings. But at the same time, we're very heavy users of Slack. And what we've found is through COVID is we're developing decision-making processes asynchronously through Slack and coming up with really amazing ways of making things happen super quickly. So yes, it's a bit of a hybrid approach. That makes sense. I think trying to go too far in any one direction starts to maybe expose the limits of that direction as well, right? So it's good to be kind of flexible. But you've been at Zero for coming up six years now, mm. just under, and you originally spent a lot of time in banking. I think you started out at Zero as a New Zealand managing director. Correct. Moved into partnerships and then ultimately into the CPO role that you're in now. But before we talk about that role, what was it that got you out of banking, which has a bit of a reputation for being quite traditional mm. and kind of, in some cases, stuck in the past and moving to a very disruptive SaaS industry? Like, what got you into that direction? Yeah, well, I, it's, it's fascinating because my, my career in banking was really always grounded in technology. And I ran internet banking. And to be honest, Jason, I always felt a little bit like the freak in the phone book. <laughs> I worked in beautiful organizations, but I always felt a little bit like the odd one out. And it's interesting because we were the first, the bank I worked at ASB, we were the first to integrate with Zero. Oh, wow. So I started to deal a lot with Rod Drury, our founder. And, you know, we really celebrated the fact that we had this relationship with Zero, and we celebrated it because we could see how well our small business customers were doing. They were more resilient. They were healthier. They were also borrowing more money. They were really performing much better than our other small businesses. And so I got really curious about Zero, And then I went on and worked for uh, a telco. <laughs> and then one day I got a, a call from Rod and one of the other execs, and they said, come down to Wellington and see us. And I had an hour drawing things on the, the whiteboard with Rog. And as I walked out, he said, hey, will you come join us? <laughs> and I literally, I literally resigned from my role two days later and the rest is really history. <laughs> yeah, there were some pretty good drawings then, that's all I can say. For sure. Well, I should have taken a picture and framed it. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you were working there originally as the MD, as we said, and then partnerships before taking a CPO role about three years ago. And you've obviously got a really strong background in digital and strategy and some of the stuff that you've been working in in those other companies. But as far as I can tell, no direct product management background yourself before that role. So how did you kind of get into product and being the exec level sponsor of the product team? Like, how did that come about? For sure. So when I was leading internet banking, I was creating mobile apps and trying to solve problems for our customers. So that was my first entree, if you like, into product. And I really love that. I did a lot of thinking about why I love technology so much. And after a lot of contemplation, (laughs) went to a course and they said, right, you've got to come up with a personal purpose. And, you know, kind of inward eye roll and you think, oh, gosh. And (laughs) (laughs) and then one day I was just sitting down having a cup of coffee and I wrote it down. And it came to me and it's just held the test of time. And that was to democratize success through technology. It's really important for me that people have access to the things that previously they wouldn't have had access to. And technology can enable that to happen, whether that's tools, information, advice, connection to like-minded people. But I love the fact that technology takes away all those barriers and allows people to, to reach their full potential. So I think I always had a little bit of that product spirit in me. <laughs> and then, of course, I did some work in at a telco, which was around digital transformation, and observed there, you know, the difference between agile and agile. <laughs> and agile with a big A, agile with a little A, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And then when I moved into my role as MD for New Zealand, I was talking to customers and our partners, our accountants and bookkeepers all day, every day. And I really learned, you know, what motivated them, what really annoyed them, all the nooks and crannies of our product that they love, that they they re- really annoyed about. And and I, gosh, I thought, gosh, you know, wouldn't it be cool to get back into a, a role where I've got the opportunity to, to serve our partners and our customers again through technology? And so I actually then moved into the chief partnership role, which was really about yeah. creating software for our accounts and bookkeepers, looking after our ecosystem partners. And through that, then moved into our chief product officer role when we bought it all together. So I think there's a, a mix of street smarts uh, experience, <laughs> <laughs> learning from amazing people around me. Some of our newest zeros are the best coaches and mentors, I think, because you know they're really challenging us to do new things, and I try and stay super close to them as well. <laughs> so. I think like most product people, you don't go to university and say, right, I want a degree in product, <laughs> but you definitely find your tribe along the way and then you never go back. Uh, absolutely. I think that reverse mentoring point is a really interesting one as well. I think it's something that's getting a little bit more traction these days, the idea that it's not just about people like you or people like me, you know, that have been working for a while and we kind of give our wisdom to the teenagers of the world on stone tablets but to actually start to learn back from them as well what's important and and help to keep our thinking up to date as well which is pretty interesting it's so important and you mentioned earlier you know if i was born again at a different time i think the other role i'd love to do is anthropology yeah (laughs) because i i really am curious about people and how they interact with each other and what we can learn from each other and i am super curious about the lens that you know, a new generation is bringing into product, but into the world in general. And it's so exciting because 
they're breaking a lot of cadence and a lot of rules. And I, I love seeing that. Uh, absolutely. Rules are there to be broken, right? For sure. But it's quite common in SaaS circles, especially in B2B. And this is something that I actually talked about in the episode I released pretty recently with uh, Rich Mirinoff, who works a lot in the B2B space. For people to bring subject matter experts or strategic minds in to represent product at the C-suite level, but that they're not product people themselves, which is kind of your journey, although I'm sure you've learned a lot of stuff, as you say. And it's fair to say that that doesn't always work. It does sometimes, it doesn't other times, really depends on that person that they bring in and 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 their interests and, and how open to learning things they are and, and how flexible they are. But you've obviously got to get the nuts and bolts stuff done day to day. Is it then a case where you really just have some strong product VPs, heads of products that are sitting there beneath you and that you're concentrating on the strategy, the big picture and those partnerships? Or do you kind of get involved in that nuts and bolts stuff quite a lot yourself as well? Yeah, I it's I guess the whole tranche of what we know as product. We make sure that we're connecting with our customers regularly. And when I meet with customers, I don't introduce myself as, you know, Anna, the chief product officer at Zero. I'm just another person in the product team. So that's really important to me. And, you know, I've got a beautiful group of product leaders around me that have also grown up in, in product through different biases. In fact, Craig Walker, who was our founding CTO, <laughs> was employee number two with Rod Drury. Founded Zero in Wellington. He's now in Washington and he's leading a big portfolio for me. So he started off life as an engineer, now leading a product portfolio. And we've got people that have come from many different sort of walks of life. So for me, that, that that's really super important. 50% of our team are female in terms of my product leadership team. Uh, wow. And 40% of our product team zeros and 40% of our leaders are female. So to me, it's it's about getting a pop puree, if, if you like, <laughs> of people from different experiences, different lenses to really get a diverse and inclusive view of you know how we can build beautiful products. For example, Emily Heinlein, who's our executive GM, which I guess in the States would be a VP. <laughs> uh, of- most people are VPs in the States, right? Oh, there you go. Well, maybe a Grand Poobah VP <laughs> of design. You know, she uh, worked in Amazon. She worked at Microsoft. She was a Seattle lady for a large part of her career, but her husband is a Kiwi. So she followed him down to New Zealand. And we're really, really delighted to have her as part of our wider product leadership team because she brings that strength of working in big technology organizations. So really lucky to have have a mix throughout the whole spectrum yeah i was going to ask this later but it seems like a good point to ask it now i spoke to someone recently another new zealander on the podcast who was talking about his efforts to really try to drive inclusion not only in sort of gender and and some of the more traditional things that you'd think of with inclusion but also trying to make sure in the context of new zealand that you're really tackling the underrepresentation of indigenous people within the product community as well. Is that something that you've had any success with in Xero or is that something that you think is still a challenge? Oh, look, I think for any product and tech organization, you never say it's done. You never say, no, sure. you know, hey, we've, <laughs> we've, yeah, solved, we've solved, we've solved it. the <laughs> inclusion thing now. You know, what we do is we encourage our people to 
identify with us, you know, in terms of their background in whichever way they, they like to describe it. So we can really understand how well we're doing. In New Zealand, we do have a, a number of really super smart, intelligent people from Māori, Pacifica, our Asian community. And I love that, you know, we, we also do things such as ally training. We're just rolling out a series of workshops. Now we've had about 400 of our product and tech people go through that. And I've gone through the training myself. And that was really important for me because you know, you can get, you can, you can invite people into the organization. Yeah. But it's really our responsibility to make sure that the environment that they're in is one where they do feel like people understand their privilege. They do feel like there's someone who'll speak up on their behalf if they feel like, yeah. uh, you know, there's microaggressions going on. Absolutely. And you yeah. can never assume that, oh, no, that's not us. <laughs> you know, part of this is really self awareness and understanding who we are. I think it's one of the most important things for us to do as a product community is really to create that environment for diversity to thrive. Uh, 100%. But like you say, never actually solved. But as long as it's going in the right direction, then it feels like at least some level of progress there. But back to those product people. I mean, us product managers can be a pretty opinionated bunch from time to time. No. And (laughs) And in some cases, very idealistic. I mean, you were waving empowered at me before this call just to give Marty Kagan a shout out as well. But as you don't have that product background traditionally, did you feel that you had any additional work to do to gain, for want of a better word, credibility with the team or to try and help them see that you were one of them or that you are one of them? And did you have any kind of, I guess, for want of a better word, pushback from the team when you came in or did you find them very accepting? I found them really accepting, although I never take that for granted. And Mm -hmm. so rather than coming from a mindset of trying to prove, (laughs) (laughs) no, I am a proper product person. For me, it was just being very authentic about what I do know and what I I don't know. And again, reaching out to people and asking for their opinion. How did you approach that problem? What were you thinking about? I'm really curious about that. And also, too, you know, as we scale, it's become really important that for us, we start to think about the way we do things at zero largely. Yeah. Uh, Because we grew up really quickly. And when I started, we found that (laughs) there were people doing different things in different ways. And when you joined zero, it wasn't necessarily like, here's the kind of handbook to get you up and running. So what we did is co-created through our people a zero framework. Uh, we launched our zero principles, and these are things that have come from our people. They're not, you know, yeah. me going off into a dark corner and reading Marty Kagan books and coming <laughs> back with scriptures. <laughs> My job is to really create that environment because we've got genius amongst us. Yeah, for for that to um, really thrive and pe- for people to collaborate and uh, and kind of form the way they want to do zero. It's really very little to do with me and a lot to do with our community. That sounds good, but you've just mentioned obviously the scaling and answered a bit of my next question, which was going to be around like how you drive that culture. But has that held up under, apart from the scale, like the organic scale that you've been achieving by just growing the team and growing your product lines, but you've also been acquiring a lot of companies as well along the way, right? And obviously the traditional idea when people, you know, when a big company acquires a smaller company is that the they kind of bring in all the talent and bring in all the tech and then eventually some of those talent leave and they all get kind of 
subsumed into something that they didn't want to work in or they start being disruptive because they were a good startup, but they might not have been operating the same way that you do. So has that kind of held up across all of those different parts of the puzzle? Or have you had any difficult decisions to make around culture in your time? Well, we haven't actually experienced any cultural clashes because it's one of the first things we look for. Right. <laughs> when when we're looking to, whether it's acquire a company or go into a deep partnership arrangement, now one of our values is beautiful, another is human, another is team. And the first hurdle, if you like, they and us have to go through, because it's as much about them wanting, to, wanting this to happen uh, as us, is do we share the same value set? And that is super, super important because, as you know, so many M&A opportunities fail because there is a cultural clash. Yeah. So that's one. And then two is really, you know, as you would do anyway if you're forming a product team, one of the first things you do is get together and figure out how you're going to work and what might go wrong and how you might, you know, develop a charter. <laughs> and that's <laughs> something that we've learned along the way. To be fair, Jason, that because there's this honeymoon period and there's this excitement, and then you know you get into integration mode. And what we've learned is it's really important just before you start to sit down and say, "Hey, how do we want to work together? You yeah. know, what is that kind of social contract we're going to make together, and how are we going to resolve issues that will inevitably come up?" Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And again, I guess. As you say, the first thing to do is actually identify that and make sure that you work on it rather than just assume that it's all going to be okay. But you touched on it just then, the value of beautiful and the tagline of Zero is beautiful accounting software. Now, obviously, back in the day, you wouldn't necessarily say that business software was beautiful at all. It's you know, very traditionally been, yeah, if there is any UX work, it's the lightest UX possible and just cramming loads of features in and making it as functional as possible. We're not really caring if it is nice to use. But that's obviously not where you're coming from. But how do you weigh up all of your competing demands around functionality and integrations against that beautiful design and having a really good interface and a really good experience for people? Because that presumably causes some tension from time to time in a sort of prioritization perspective. Yes. I mean, beautiful has been part of us forever. And I think why, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of talk in a little moment about you know how we approach it today, but because it was born with us, it feels very natural and organic. Yeah. And it's part two of making sure that small business didn't feel like a second-class citizen to big business. Small businesses create the lion's share of jobs worldwide. About 90% of businesses are small businesses contribute about 40% of GDP, you know, and we felt like they'd been underserved for so long. So one of the friction points we want to take away is not just function, but also any sort of UI friction. And that stayed with us for a long time. And so what we do from a design perspective, in fact, we're going through a process of rolling this out, is we have something called Zui, which is a zero user interface. Oh, there and you go. Yeah, everything begins with an X at zero. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a framework that takes away inefficiency and waste because it's a really easy and consumable framework to use. So that helps in terms of not having to make those trade-offs. But at the same time, we do have a high bar when it comes to yeah. aesthetics because we know that, you know, why should small businesses have anything less than that? 
it's really important to us. No, absolutely. I think it's really important. But New Zealand, where you are now, it's had a pretty hard line on COVID, as we discussed earlier. And this has meant a lot of working from home, remote collaboration, and all the other things that come with lockdowns and not being able to go out. And you've obviously touched earlier on the fact that you're a very kind of face-to-face company. You like to have that eye contact. You like to have the, I guess, collaboration that you get out of that. Has it been a challenge yourself within New Zealand and, of course, as the company expands around the world to maintain that working culture and make sure that you're, for example, flexible around how people can work? And again, we touched on asynchronicity, but like just making it easy for people to work and fit around the life that they find themselves in at the moment? It's something we talk about actually every week as a, as a leadership team at Zero because we're acutely aware, you know, we're a globally dispersed company anyway. We were before yeah. COVID hit. But now with the added stress of being at home and kids running around and pets and you know, <laughs> the cabin fever that comes with that, we're actively looking for ways to take the heat off. And so when different regions have been through long periods of COVID, we might introduce summer hours. We might say, hey, for the next month, take Friday afternoon off and just be still or do whatever you need to do to give you back some energy. We've also just implemented Monday morning flow time. We're experimenting, testing and learning with that for the next month across product and technology because we found that people's days were just being filled with meetings and it was very hard to get that really focused time. When I say focused time, it's not necessarily sitting down there and banging out a whole heap of code. It might be (laughs) sitting down and and just getting your week in order. It might be going for a walk and listening to a podcast. (laughs) No, I'd never catch on. (laughs) No, but but whatever it is, it's going to send to you. And set you up for the week. And we've, we, we've chosen Monday because essentially we don't, if, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you're not reaching out to the Northern Hemisphere because you know it's Sunday for them. And then when we wake up on a Tuesday morning, it's Monday afternoon for the US. So that's working really well. We're getting a lot of good feedback. We'll change some things, no doubt. But there's this one example, I guess, of just trying to think creatively about how we can help. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, the whole idea that people have to be chained to their desk for eight hours a day, nonstop. I mean, there's been a lot of stories in the news up here. I don't know how it is down your end of the globe, if globes have ends. <laughs> the basic idea that companies are trying to invest a lot in productivity tracking tools and kind of attendance tracking tools and stuff like that to try and make sure that the staff are effectively being as monitorable as they are at the office. Wow. It sounds from what you said that you're not at all a fan of that. No. In fact, one of the first things our CEO, Steve Vammer, said when COVID hit was just do the best you can. Yeah. It's all we ask, just do the best you can. And it's what we've repeated time and time again. And every time we say that, we get a real surge of feedback from our people saying, thank you, because it's hard. This is really hard. And so, you know, if <laughs> if you treat people like adults and you've invested in you know, these really smart, talented, motivated people coming into your, you know, your, your organization, that's a real privilege. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't imagine a day where you'd want to do anything to make them feel like you're suspicious because, <laughs> you know, this is all about relationships. And <laughs> yeah, I think you'd be surprised. Oh, uh, look, I, th- I think 
for us, it it is really important that, again, it's our human value. We know that when you're in a position where you're feeling motivated, rewarded, sustained, everything we know about science and the brain means you're going to be doing the best work of your life. Yeah. If you're under a threat response, <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> you're going to be having amygdala explosions. You're going to be thinking, oh, my gosh, I better type something because someone might be monitoring, you know, how many keystrokes I type on, on my board. Yeah. You know, it's just not, it's not healthy. And all the science says it's not productive, ironically. Yeah, it just reminds me of the quote from the great film Office Space, which is, all that will do is make you work just hard enough not to get fired, <laughs> which I think is fair enough. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's look, it's interesting. Through this period, we actually found our engagement grew substantially. So when COVID hit, we actually said May, so this is May 2020, we said to our product and tech teams, you know your customers better than we do. So what we're going yeah. to do in May is allow you to have a period where you can just focus on doing anything you need to do, which you know would help your customers at this time. So, in Aussie and in the UK, we very quickly created like furlough calculators. Right. Yeah. We made sure it was super simple to be able to for for small businesses with employees to get the benefits that were offered yep. to them by the various governments. Yeah, yeah. So that ship it month was we delivered a huge amount of value in quite a short space of time by just stepping back and saying to our people, you do what you need to do to support our customers right now because you, you actually know what's going to make a difference. Yeah. And I think examples like that are just one where you trust your people and you trust your customers and it all comes together. Yeah, that local knowledge I think is really important. I wanted to touch briefly on your work with the APEC Business Advisory Council, or APAC. So it's like an acronym within an acronym. Which I, I know. <laughs> I, sometimes I even trip myself up on that. <laughs> so you're not alone. But this is a an advisory, a kind of, well, it's an Asia-Pacific advisory council where you get nominated to be a member and you got nominated by the prime minister of your country. So that's obviously a pretty big deal. And that makes a lot of sense because you're a senior business leader in the region. But how did that specifically come about that you got put forward for that position? I was part of the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council and was lucky enough to be invited to join that because I have a strong passion for digital and especially for education. Again, how do you democratize success for children that, you know, in low socio communities? Yeah. Well, give them a device, access to the internet and see what happens. So. <laughs> So I'd been very outspoken about that, and that obviously leads into the future of work. And so I think for our Prime Minister and the Chairman at the time, they felt that I could contribute both the small business, digital education, and the future of work. And so we actually disbanded that group as we headed into COVID. There were quite a few late nights with the Prime Minister talking about opportunities from a business perspective. And we were heading into elections, so we disbanded that group. And then, gosh, it was late last year, Rachel Tlulai, who is actually the chair of ABAC this year because New Zealand is chairing APEC, she had been on the Prime Minister's Business Advisory Council with me. And she was looking for another member, spoke to the Prime Minister, and they do all these special checks. I'm not sure quite what they check behind the scenes. And <laughs> 
And voila, I was chosen. And I'm deeply grateful. It's a real privilege because you get to not only represent New Zealand, but you get to have an influence and also learn from colleagues right around the region. Yeah, it sounds like a really good opportunity. But have there been any really exciting outputs from that so far that you're really proud of? Or is that very much work in progress since you've only been there for a few months? Well, we, uh, I was lucky enough to be on a or chair a digital task force, which was focused on how we can enable small businesses to, to succeed, you know, through, through technology, funnily enough. <laughs> and so some of the things that we've recommended back to the leaders, a few things, you know, access to uh, education and enablement, implementing things like e-invoicing, which is, you know, really important in terms of impact on cash flow and the speed and value of cash around an economy. So things like AI, interoperability, a whole host of recommendations. We're in this position now, Jason, where the technology is there. And, you know, as Mark Andreessen said, I think during COVID, it's time to build. (laughs) We just need the humans to hold hands and jump together. So very strong recommendations with a very strong digital agenda this year for APEC, definitely. Sounds brilliant. But who's going to be the next unicorn then down there? Oh, gosh. There are so many in our, in our app community. I actually think anyone that's dealing, and I, I don't want to pick any favorites, but anyone, <laughs> anyone who is looking to use AI and machine learning to solve everyday problems, not, oh, cool, we can do this. Now, what problem could we solve with it? But people who are really looking to solve everyday problems through smart data, I think you've got to keep an eye on an edgy eye on and there's quite a few in our ecosystem i will make sure that i keep ahead of the trade press and invest accordingly <laughs> but what's next for zero any big new releases or strategic initiatives we should start getting excited about or are you kind of keeping it under your hat for now well we've got a few exciting things coming up obviously you know i can't talk about all of them but oh, come on you can do it <laughs> Look, definitely we continue to invest, especially we've got an amazing community across Australia and New Zealand, but really investing and putting product teams into the US, along with Canada and the UK, just solving, you know, from a minimal level product perspective, solving the things that we know are really important to a small business. And it's stuff like high integrity data coming in to their accounting software, so they're not going to have to manually enter stuff us being able to do beautiful things with that. So, you know, we've got a great cash flow tool, Analytics Plus. They can start to go, oh, gosh, I might need some some money soon to help me through this period. We acquired Waddle, which is an invoice financing organization down in Australia, and we're doing amazing things with them in terms of just starting to, A, being able to identify when you do need some capital, but B, being able to apply for that and get a really good deal as well. So, yeah, lots of exciting things. We're doing a lot of things in the background with the old AI and email. Bit of this and a <laughs> Good bit old of AI. <laughs> but again, really practical things, really, really practical things. So a whole host of things. I mean, we were lucky enough to also acquire a business called Plan Day. When you talk about culture, and my goodness, they're like <laughs> the Denmark version of zero. And, and, you know, I've never actually met a Plan Day, but gosh, we feel like family. And so, again, 
doing a lot with them as we look at businesses that employ people and are trying to get back on their feet because we've always had a history in payroll in a lot of our more mature regions. But what we want to do is attach that to things like time scheduling and attendance. And we want to give employees a really cool experience in the same way we've given small businesses. Because if you think about it, it'll be employees who, you know, it's starting to change the way they work, the whole liberalization of the workforce, right? We want to make sure that, you know, someone's got their back because they're going yeah. to be leading a lot of the COVID recovery. So watch the space for, yeah. for some cool stuff coming there too. Uh, I will, again, keep my eyes open on the relevant trade publications and uh, try and keep ahead of it. <laughs> uh, where can people get in touch with you after this if they want to talk about any of those cool things or product in general or maybe get some tips on how to be the CPO of a big organization? Oh, look, I'm on all of the relevant social media platforms. <laughs> so LinkedIn, Twitter. <laughs> cool. Well, I'll make sure that's all linked into the show notes and then people can come and find you if they need you. I'd love that. Well, that's been a really fantastic chat. So obviously really appreciate you taking the time, especially so late at night. It's been uh, Hopefully a we can stay in touch. But uh, as for now, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much, Jason. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share it with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>